0: My topic is the death of honor and the birth of faith. And my text from Luke chapter 1 and verse 38, and Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. My sermon this evening falls into three parts. First, the so-called honor among Semitic peoples. Second, how Mary and Joseph dishonored this tradition with the obedience of faith. And finally, what this means for us in our continuing season of Advent. Central to the code of honor in many traditional societies is a woman's virginity which must be preserved until marriage. It is the property of the woman's father, and later a gift to her husband. Where women are viewed as property, the owner of the property has the right to decide its fate. This leads, alas, to what is called honor killings, which may be defined as the murder of a member of a social group, usually a woman by other members due to the perpetrators belief that the victim has brought shame or dishonor on the family or community by refusing to enter into an arranged marriage, being in a disapproved relationship, having sex outside of marriage, becoming a victim of rape, dressing in inappropriate ways or engaging in homosexual relations. In ancient Rome, the pater familias had the right, the legal right, to kill an unmarried, sexually active daughter or his adulterous wife. The practice of honor killing, sad to say, continues today in the Middle East and South Asia, although it is neither authorized nor condemned by the Quran. United Nations estimates that some 2,000 women die this way every year. Women's advocacy groups suspect that the real figure is over 20,000 killed worldwide. The incidents are underreported, they contend, because of family or community approval of the deaths. So they are classified as accidents or suicides. In addition to murders, There are acid attacks, abductions, mutilations, and beatings. Blood cleanses honor is the motto of the perpetrators of honor killings. Anthropologists have explained the harshness of these sanctions as follows. In a patrilineal society, men seek to control the reproductive power. Women are the only means after all for creating more men but a man must be sure that the children his wife bears are his own, carrying his DNA. So drastic sanctions are imposed for sexual misbehavior to keep women in line. In the Bible, adultery is condemned by the seventh of the 10 commandments. The penalty for breaking this commandment was death for both the man and the woman. Listen to these chilling words from Deuteronomy chapter 22. If there is a betrothed virgin, and a man meets her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife, so you shall purge evil from your midst. By the first century, the evidentiary requirement to establish adultery was strict. The couple must be caught in the act. But we know from the incident reported in John chapter 8, where it is only the woman taken in adultery who is brought before Jesus that men often escaped punishment. When Jesus was asked whether she should be stoned, he said, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. He did not condone adultery for he told the woman go and from now on sin no more. But he made the extreme sanction unenforceable except by God. I give you this grim background on honor killing among the Semites and how sexual dishonor is was and is punished so that you can understand the challenge that faced a young virgin named Mary. She was probably no more than 14 years old and engaged to be married to Joseph, a carpenter in the town of Nazareth in Galilee. Under Jewish law and custom, the engagement or betrothal was considered a binding contract, which could be ended only by divorce, which was initiated by the man. She and Joseph did not live together or consummate the marriage during the engagement, but legally, she was already his wife. One day, the secure, predictable, small-town world of Mary was shattered by her encounter with an angel of God. Gabriel greeted her as a favored one and assured her that the Lord is with you. Mary, understandably, was profoundly disturbed and desperate to know what such a greeting might mean. The angel told her she would conceive and bear a son and name him Jesus, that is Yahweh saves. He would be the son of God and reign over God's people forever. Mary showed herself both practical and knowledgeable about human reproduction. She replied, how will this be since I am a virgin? The angel's reply was essentially, God will do it. The Holy Spirit would come upon her, like upon prophets of old, and God's power would overshadow her. The child would be called holy. God would be his father, and he would be God's son. And then the angel offered her a demonstration of God's power to do what is naturally impossible, her barren cousin Elizabeth. An old woman, well past menopause, was even six months pregnant. Four concluded the angel, nothing will be impossible with God. The narrative is compact and then moves right along to our text. But don't kid yourself whether Mary waited 10 seconds before replying or 10 minutes or 10 hours. She stood on the edge of a precipice. This was the biggest decision of her life. Would she risk her honor? Would she risk her life? An unmarried pregnant woman in a culture that stoned adulteresses. What clearer evidence could there be for Joseph and the whole village of Nazareth of adultery than her bulging belly? And who would believe that God was the father? that she was in human terms, still a virgin. Can you see the women of Nazareth shaking their heads? Poor thing to believe a tale like that. Can you hear the men laughing over their wine? Maybe her lover wore a halo. (laughs) But to be weighed against the danger and the risk was a different sort of honor. The honor of being chosen by God to bring his Messiah into the world. The one, the whole nation of Israel groaning under Roman taxes and Roman oppression and Roman occupation, the tramp of soldiers and the rattle of chariot wheels longed to welcome. But did Mary have a choice? Could she have said no, run away, change the subject, stalled in giving an answer to the angel? The sorts of things you and I do regularly with God. Of course she could. She was not God's puppet. From Adam and Eve on down throughout the biblical narrative, where God's word comes, there is always, always the freedom to accept and receive it or to reject and ignore it. And so Mary, notwithstanding the strong cultural sanctions that might await her, said yes to God. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. But Mary sorely needed what had been promised her, confirmation of God's faithfulness through Elizabeth's pregnancy. So if we read on in Luke's account, we discover that she arose and went with haste to Elizabeth. Not only is Elizabeth indeed pregnant, but by the Spirit's inspiration, she knows that Mary is now pregnant with the Messiah. And notice that Luke does not describe, much less reveal, the moment of conception. It simply will happen when Mary says yes to God, and it has happened when she reaches Elizabeth. Gentlemen, This is the death of patriarchy, the most important conception in the history of the whole human race, and we weren't needed. It happened without us. Mary assented, and God did the rest. There's a lesson there for human pride and the male ego. Now Mary is ready to sing, and her song called the Magnificat from the Latin for magnifies, as in my soul magnifies the Lord, is recorded in Luke's Gospel. We heard it sung beautifully by Becky Alexander. In the first part of the song, Mary praises God for what he has done for her alone. But then she proclaims her vision of the kingdom which has begun with her obedience of faith, her saying yes to God the brave new world to be ushered in by the incarnation. She doesn't experience it fully yet, but she hopes for it because she trusts in God. From generation to generation, God will show mercy to those who fear him, scattering the proud, bringing down the mighty, exalting the humble, filling the hungry with good things, and sending the rich away empty. All in fulfillment of his promise to Abraham that in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Mary remains with Elizabeth for that difficult first trimester of her pregnancy and Elizabeth's last trimester. And after three months, she returns home to face Joseph. Here, Matthew takes up the story. When Joseph discovers Mary's condition, presumably out of his love for her, he decides to divorce her privately rather than insisting on a public trial which would doubtless end in her death by stoning. But Joseph in a dream has his own encounter with an angel who tells him, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She shall bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Joseph woke up to a changed world. Or did he? Was that really God talking to him? You know what we say. We think we talk to God and that's prayer. We think God talks to us and that's psychosis. Is Joseph really willing to risk the gossip, the smirks, The laughter. Men are not kind to their fellows who tolerate the adultery of their wives. Cuckold is not a compliment. Nazareth is a small town, and small towns have long memories and sharp recollections. There's Joseph. Isn't he the one who... That the scandal of Jesus' supposed birth continued throughout his life. We know from John chapter 8, when Jesus tells the crowd that they are not Abraham's children, and they retort, we were not born of sexual immorality, and the like you were may be inferred. So Joseph also stands on a precipice. He could say no, divorce Mary, run away from God but he doesn't. He joins Mary in the obedience of faith. He trusts in the new thing that God is doing. He joins up as a recruit for the kingdom and lives not in the world of old, tired, small town scandal, but in God's brave new world, recreated in mercy and righteousness. We read, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, He took his wife but knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. So there you have it. Mary and Joseph disregard the dangers of the honor code, put that honor to death as it were, that they might experience the birth of faith. And they are the prototypes for all of us. If we too are willing to risk security and even safety for the coming kingdom of God. If we choose to live now in the hope of the brave new world of God's making, that is why I spoke of the Advent season as a continuous one. The church calendar will move on on Thursday to Christmas and then to Epiphany, followed by Lent and Easter. But we must remain obedient to the hope that God will fulfill his promises to us. That obedience may cost us dearly. It may cost us the respect of some secular friends, promotions and advancement at work. We may not make all the money we could have made or go to all the important occasions we might have been invited to. The world's honors may pass us by. We might even encounter active persecution. But like Mary and Joseph, we are invited every day to say yes to the word of God and live in and with those four great commands of our Lord in preparation for his return in glory. And they are watch, pray, serve, and endure. So as you contemplate Mary and Joseph in your nativity crash this Christmas, they will be looking calm and serene with the stable animals and the shepherds and the magi, and of course, the newborn baby Jesus. Remember their moment of decision for God and his gospel, the choice they made, and make that choice your own. Amen.